Okay. Well, hey, fellas, 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 welcome back to another episode of The Farm System. We are live with my man, Travis Thicklin, over there at Dixie State. Uh, Bo, why don't you, you know, uh, go ahead. Uh, welcome, welcome, Travis, to the show, huh? Travis, what's going on, man? Appreciate you taking some time to sit down with us. Hey, I appreciate the invitation. I'm happy to talk and do stuff during this lockdown. Right. <laughs> right. How's St. George, man? You live down there in St. George? I do. It's beautiful. Yeah. I've been How's escaping into the desert and socially distancing myself from all humanity on a daily basis. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm up in the Salt Lake area, so the weather's a little bit different. So. Yeah, and you're a little more locked down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Well, you know, Travis, obviously a big reason that uh, we wanted to have you on and a big reason that, you know, we're going to be diving into a lot of these different things is, you know, I, I actually had the pleasure of meeting you over at Justin Stone's place out in Chicago not too long ago. Um, you know, again, we got to talk shop and run through a whole bunch of different things and you got to dive into a lot more of, um, you know, you, you actually play around in the lab every single day. So you have a lot more, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, a lot more experience in a lot of different areas. Um, you know, and we really got to bounce a lot of things off of each other, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Really thought it would be a great, uh, great to have you on the show, and really, you know, talk to you and dive into a lot of these different things. That's awesome. Yeah, I had a blast talking with you. I, I love that you use the term "play" for what I do in the lab. My employers <laughs> don't know that, <laughs> so we'll try to keep this out of their hands. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well. Um, no, yeah, let's get into it. Um, yeah, Bo, why don't you, yeah. why don't you fire, start firing off at him, Bo? Go ahead. Yep. Travis, obviously not everybody on the call has had the opportunity to chat with you. So why don't we just start by uh, having you walk us through kind of the journey to get to this point in your professional career. <laughs> so you're both so young, but um, <laughs> I can tell you that years ago when I was closer to your age than uh, – I was approaching graduation from my uh, undergraduate career at Brigham Young University. I decided I would like to um, teach physics and coach baseball. And so I set up my program of study to do that very thing. And that's exactly what I did. I went to work um, both teaching physics and coaching baseball at a school. Bo, you may know it uh, at Mountain View High School in Orem, Utah. Yeah, that's where my parents hey. graduated from. There you go. Okay. And Travis, yeah. don't forget, I was out in Utah for a very short, brief period. No, it doesn't count. It doesn't <laughs> Come count. back, Joey, come back. <laughs> and uh, so, so one of the things that ended up happening is that I became our de facto pitching coach. Um, no, no, nobody else wanted those duties. And I had thrown like maybe three games in my life. <laughs> uh, so that made me the pitching coach, right? Um, uh, and like most things in life, I try to sort of approach things through the lens of physics, which makes me sort of narrow-minded sometimes, I'm sure. But what I, what I found out is I tried to educate myself about uh, mechanics and, and how, to, uh, how to throw efficiently, how to prevent injury and things like this. As I, I kind of stumbled into this world of biomechanics, which um, grabbed hold of me quickly because there, here's this combination, right, of these two things I love, baseball and physics both all wrapped up into this thing called biomechanics. So for me, it was kind of like the, the Reese's peanut butter cup of disciplines, right? It combined the chocolate of baseball and the delicious peanut butter of physics. Yeah. And uh, so that just kind of stuck in my brain uh, years later to make a, a very long story short years later, I had the opportunity to go back to school and I uh, got a master's in sports medicine so that I could kind of build a bridge between my, physics background and biomechanics. And then I went and studied with um, Jesus de Pena. Uh, I found him because some of the first articles that were published on pitching biomechanics were by him and, and uh, Michael Feltner. And so I, I looked up Jesus de Pena. I went right to him. It's the only program I applied to. If I hadn't gotten in, who knows what I'd be doing now. And uh, long story short, completed a successful program of study with him in biomechanics and computer science. Uh, got a job at the University of Northern Iowa where we didn't have baseball. They did away with baseball there some years ago um, because when it came down to it, uh, you know, politi locally, politically, I guess it was probably more palatable to cut baseball than it was wrestling in Iowa is my guess. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so that, uh, that caused me to cross paths with Robin Lund, who is one of my dearest friends, and we did a bunch of cool research things together, uh, particularly on hitting. 
Uh, and then I wound up here at Dixie State. I'm from the West. I grew up in Grand Junction, Colorado. This is, you know, five hours from my hometown and just kind of feel like I've come home. And, and I, I, I genuinely love what I do every day. I, I may be, I, I may actually be doing the job I was born to do. And that's a pretty rare thing in this world. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. When you, when you talk on your role there at Dixie State, how does it integrate with uh, the sports programs? Do you, do you specifically just work with baseball or do you work with the whole athletic department? I, I, I work with anybody that wants to work together, to be honest <laughs> with you. I, I, uh, I love diamond sports, um, baseball and softball. Those are the things that really get my juices flowing. So I do as much as I can with both of those programs. And, and I'm happy to say that uh, both our baseball and softball programs are very open to, to working together. They're very helpful with, providing me opportunities to collect data, um, yeah. to be at the field, to, uh, uh, to do things with players, um, to have them into the lab. We've had like educational nights where, you know, I'll talk to hitters about like, these are the scientific foundations of hitting that we know about and just kind of try and put that into a language that a player can actually digest and use. Yeah. Um, I regard it as a, as a, uh, as an awesome working relationship, but then our strength and conditioning staff is, you know, we've collaborated, collaborated with them and uh, some of our other teams and so forth. I, most of the research that I do, so, so just to back up a tiny bit, and I know I don't want to go too far down this because I know we're on a time limit, but, you know, Dixie State University is actually primarily a teaching institution. So any research that I do is, is kind of on my own. They're not expecting me to do it. My job doesn't depend upon whether or not I do it. But that said, they're very supportive of it. And when we built our new human performance center and I asked for uh, certain things in my biomechanics lab, like the motion capture system, a couple of force plates and a batting cage, they let me put that in the lab. So I probably teach in one of the few classrooms in the nation that has a batting cage in it, for example. So that's how, yeah. that's how uh, cooperative, helpful, you know, that's the kind of like positive working relationship I have with the institution. It's, it's nearly ideal. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's a, that's a big thing. You know, uh, people don't realize how big of a deal uh, that really is uh, to actually have a cage inside the lab that there are very little labs that actually have a cage inside the lab. And I say this all the time is that a lot of times uh, the cages are, I mean, uh, biomechanics labs are set up for like more so for like pitchers, right? Because they, mm -hmm. a, a pitching mound can throw, you can throw it down, put a screen in front of it and, you know, yeah. you can use it with all, you know, labs are expensive. They're used for a multi-use uh, system. So it's actually pretty interesting that you have that. I know that you have a, uh, a CME system over there, which is again, a, a lab that I've had a little bit of experience with as well. Um, we talked about that a little bit at Justin's place. Um, but I'm also interested, I know one thing specifically in your background is about uh, in biomechanics is there's a big focus on striking, right? Mm -hmm. About a lot of striking and a lot of different uh, sports. So I want, wanted to bring up this question is, what is it about biomechanics, especially this branch of striking? What is so unique about striking? And I'll let you kind of dive into there and kind of unravel a lot of those layers and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, so, uh, I guess in biomechanics speak, somebody might call it like a flail-like uh, motion. So, a flail is, a, is an old threshing device. It's two sticks. It's almost like nunchucks, right? You, you fling one and the other end picks up big speed, and that's very similar to uh, human striking activities. So, if you're talking about pitching or hitting, right, um, since, since we're going to be talking about baseball things here, if you're talking about pitching or hitting, then you're talking about developing velocity in distal endpoints, and uh, that's created by movement more proximally and transfers of momentum. So I think that's the biomechanical uh, sort of framework for understanding those things is understanding transfers of momentum. So that's kind of what draws me uh, to that research is because a lot of human movements uh, do rely on that transfer of, of momentum. So there's sometimes people would classify things as push like movements. Like if you're throwing a shot put and, and other people might classify things as whip like movements, which to me is what overhand baseball throwing is. Um, it, interestingly from a biomechanical standpoint, you know, kicking a soccer ball with maximum effort is very similarly from, is very similar from a physics standpoint to throwing a baseball as hard as you can. Yeah, no, that makes um, sense. which to me yeah. makes it uh, a lot of fun to analyze. Yeah, we talk about transferring momentum 
um, proximal to distal and actually transferring the force that we're creating into, into an object. Uh, why don't you touch on the role deceleration plays in that process? Um, yeah, so deceleration is a feature of that, right? So, so one of the features of a whip-like movement is that there's a sequence of velocity building, right? So a more proximal segment maxes out its velocity before the next segment mm -hmm. starts to really pick up its, uh, its momentum. And I'll start using the word momentum necessarily instead of velocity because as you go from proximal to distal, the segments become less massive. And so correspondingly, they become uh, higher speed. Um, so as that happens, um, you get a natural deceleration of the proximal signal when the momentum is transferred. Um, a really, uh, if people want a really interesting read on this, I don't know if either of you've gotten into this. I, I should have mentioned this to you the other day, Joey, but, yeah. uh, there was a, the, uh, there's an old book it's written, I want to say in the early seventies by Alistair Cochran and John Stobbs called in search of the perfect swing. And it's actually, it's a golf book. And it uh, talks about flail-like movements, and it talk it literally, uh, you know, models a golf swing as a as a flail, as a two-segment double pendulum, and it talks about that transfer of momentum so that as you're as you're swinging the club and this, you know, end out here, which will comp you know in this case comprise the club, yep. picks up its velocity. This part here, the more proximal part, has to slow down. It just has to to satisfy the conservation of momentum. And so you see that. Do you have to train it? That's a good question. And uh, does it just happen because of uh, action and reaction torques between segments? That's most likely, right? If, if my upper arm has momentum and then all of a sudden I, I, I'm going to create, and this is not a great example because some of this extension happens just because of inertia. But, but let's, let's say I was going to actively extend the elbow the, the torque that my upper arm puts on the forearm has to be countered by a torque that the forearm is putting on the upper arm and that's going to slow the upper arm down. And that's why you see it. Yeah. So if you see, if there's a good efficient, you know, transfer of momentum from segment to segment to segment, you're going to see also a deceleration of segment to segment to segment, like a wave moving through. So there's a speeding up and then a slowing down. And you're both well familiar, I'm sure, as, as are other people listening in on this, you know, with, you know, charts and graphs of the velocity as it picks up and then the next thing picks up and then you can see the decay in the velocity mm -hmm. of the segment that just had the momentum and is now passing it on. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. It, it, a big piece of that is like, um, obviously people will talk about like disassociation, but they're not, you got to like when my process starts up, okay, well, what's causing the disassociation, right? Like, um, like to your point is that when you look at that and you look at those graphs, you also can, there's a lot of athletes that will have, like, let's say if you have, you know, a cellarometer on your like chest and your, your elite arm, right? Um, yeah. There's a lot of times where those might be peaking at the exact same time where, you know, there's never any disassociation or transfer of momentum that you're talking about or any of these speeds, uh, which uh, that's when we come into where again, that's for me personally, from my experience, that's when we start teaching trunk deceleration, which again would transfer energy into that lead arm. And that's when I kind of get into there. But I would also say, just like you're saying as well, like when someone sequence well, you know, it's not something that you always need to train or we train with every single guy. Uh, it's just more so about like, you know, guys that are having some of these symptoms or they're losing a loss of momentum or they're not transferring it well or et cetera. But yeah, or, or they're, you know, sometimes you see it a lot with kids. They'll swing almost robotically, right? They haven't learned to let their body whip. They haven't learned to let the barrel pick up at speed because of actions you're doing in here rather than with your, you know, they're, they're swinging so hard and they're death choking the, the grip of the club, of the bat, not the club. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so that's when, that's when, you know, somebody like you, the practitioner who's actually trying to help somebody learn how to swing has to take a step back and kind of help them understand, like, this is a whip. This thing's a whip that you're making here. And uh, you don't have to fight that hard to actually make it whoosh pretty well. Yeah. You know? And you could, you could actually too, like, I think that with a one thing, a misconception with a lot of players is that um, it, they, for coaches that are listening in a big feel that a lot of guys will have during that time is they feel like they're late. They're like, I'm, I keep, I feel like I'm beat all the time. And, and realistically, the reason that they're feeling like they're beat is they're not, they can't, they, that acceleration, that late acceleration that they would feel and the head would get out, or they feel like I can't get the head out. I can't mm -hmm. get the head out. 
Well, a lot of times they're not getting that last link or not the last link, but one of the last links in the chain where the yeah. arms that pick up speed. So the reason they are late, but the common fix for that or a player, what his thought process is, well, I need to swing harder, right? I need to be <laughs> faster. But the problem is, is how they're trying to be faster is actually slower or again, very inefficient. And then, you know, there's that misconception of like what the feel is, the actual, what the fix is. Um, that's why I love, you know, the biomechanics side. It's just such a, a cool way to kind of look at those things and, uh, and kind of walks into that next uh, spiderweb of questions uh, that I had for you. But, <laughs> you know, I, when we look at this as I want to go is like, from a biomechanics lens, when you're evaluating a lot of these athletes, you know, what do you believe is the biggest separator and performance when you look at it from that lens? Um, you know, I know that's a loaded question, but go ahead and hack sure. it. Well, do you mean like in general, uh, in general, I would say there's a, there's a handful of things, right? So Jesus, my, my doctoral advisor, he, who this might surprise people or maybe they wouldn't if they know who he is, but he's actually not a baseball guy. He's got his name all over these baseball papers that he wrote with Felner, but he's not a baseball guy. He's a, he's a high jump guy okay. actually, which is kind of an interesting thing. And so he's always thinking about just like athletic ability. And he used to say all the time, like if you've got a choice between the body or the technique, pick the body, always pick the body, interesting. hope to train the technique, but you can't have perfect technique and then a crappy body and then expect to reach elite, you know, level. So yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, you know, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, and I get that. So it leads to the temptation to say, Oh, this is, this is all genetically encoded, right? You're never gonna, you can't reach this level because genetically, you know, and, and I'm sure my kids are tempted to think that as they watch their, you know, professional baseball dreams go up in flames. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, I would say this, um, there are some general athletic ab abilities that you need to have. So yeah. I would put at the top of those things, uh, a, a good rate of force development, right? Oh, somebody yeah. who can, uh, sure. somebody who can develop force quickly, um, is, is a person who's got an advantage, particularly with hitting, right? So, so yeah. fast twitch ability is important for pitching. We know that too, but, but for hitting it's, it's, it's everything, right? How quickly can you, how quickly can you, um, can you ramp force up, right? So you're going to, you're standing there, you have a bat, you're in the box, and you have, for all intents and purposes, no angular momentum whatsoever. There's, there's, there's no momentum certainly in the bat just yet. There's, there's waggle, there's load, there's all kinds of things going on, but there's no, there's no meaningful momentum yet. So how's it going to get there? The only thing you're connected to externally is the, is the ground, right? You're connected to a planet if you want to look at it that way. So somehow... You're going to have to generate momentum using, you know, motions of your legs, your trunk, and so forth, and transfer it to a bat. Okay, well, if you're good at rate of force development, that won't take as long as it will for somebody who's not. Mm -hmm. Also, if you can move efficiently, it won't take as long as it will for somebody who's not. And some efficiency, I think, really can be trained. Yeah. Um, some people really do have uh, just sort of, they're just sort of blessed with this kinesthetic sense where they can really feel how their body moves in space and they pick things up really, really quickly. And we classically have referred to that as eye-hand coordination, but that, that is a real thing, but that's a lot more trainable sometimes than, than the, the rate of force development. That said, you know, young players have this wonderful opportunity as they're coming into adolescence to train that well, because that's when they're going to be really, really, um, what's the word I'm looking for, susceptible to it, or they're going to be really uh, responsive is a better word. They're going to be really responsive to, to, uh, to training that lends itself to a big rate of force development. Um, there's like that training window, right, yeah. is what you're, you're speaking about. Like there's a good time within their development. There's a window that you really yeah. want to take advantage of. They're more malleable during that time. Yeah, for sure. So, so there's, an, and I'm not an expert on the muscle physiology of things, but, uh, but, uh, hold on. Can you, don't, don't run past that. The biomechanist saying that, you know, there's a certain, there's other sciences that he's aware that he's not just because he's really good in one area. doesn't mean that, you know, you recognize that's good. I just wanted to point that out. A lot of people run past that. They just think that. Oh, expert in a certain <laughs> well, in my area, case, it's even worse than you're saying, because in my case, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm basically a physics guy. And so like the motor learning, the muscle physiology, yeah. Those are things that I study a lot. I actually teach a motor control class. So, yeah, but, right. but for me, that's a huge learning curve where I have to 
come up to speed. I have to teach myself a lot of things because it, if it's not physics and it doesn't fit into a math equation, it's not my natural wheelhouse. So, so I'm, I am glad you brought that up too, because, okay, let's talk about muscle physiology. Well, here's my understanding of it. Right. And that is that uh, and muscle physiology and just motor control and things like motor units and fiber recruitment and so on and so forth. And we talk about fast twitch and slow twitch motor units and things. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of plasticity in that system when you're young. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's when you're on the, when you're on the, the adult side of puberty, when you've gone through puberty already in, there's some things that it's sort of too late to do. There's a lot of, um, actual, um, you know, motor neurons that have become what they are. They're either, you know, slow twitch fatigue resistant or they're fast twitch, uh, fast, fast fatigable. And, uh, of course we can train when we get older, we can train, we can make all of our muscle fibers behave more in a certain way but when you're training through that adolescent period you're you're actually physically making those things into something that's predisposed to move quickly so doing a lot of you know sprinting i have a 14 year old he's always like dad how can i get faster i'm like go sprint yeah. if you want to run fast run fast all right if you want to swing a bat fast swing a bat fast um, get those, get those motor units to, to fire when they're supposed to fire and with the biggest possible rate of force development. Yeah. So but I realized that that, I realized that it's not a, that that's at that point, I just left coaching and went into just like general, just like do this as fast as you can. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No refinement to what I just said. So <laughs> let's, let's acknowledge that. So, so you would say during that, that stage of plasticity to focus less on the technique and more on the rate of force development and building more of the athlete. That's, that's what I would do. There's, there's no reason not to tackle both things, right? They yeah, could also be, say, yeah. you know, they could also be doing things with specificity, but there's also, I think of this as like sort of a reservoir of athletic ability, strength, you know, whatever you want to call it, explosiveness and power. Yeah. You want to build the biggest, deepest possible reservoir you can while you can so that when later on when it's needed, it's there for you. Yeah. So I was, I was going to you know, add to that is, is there's no reason while, again, we could be training this. Basically, what we talked about in the mini course as well is that there's no reason that while we're building the engine during that window that we're also training them within short windows to be fast, right? Yeah. Rather than rather than, you know, again, it's, yes, I want to change, I want to train the engine as well, but I want to train the engine within specificity of the task, right? Like if I'm going to teach a guy to train an engine, I'm teaching him this big haymaker. Okay. Now he's going to develop speed within this big haymaker. But again, because he's not utilizing technique of like, again, throwing a cross or something in the shorter window. Um, you know, again, we can, we can execute on both at the same time. We can build the engine. Right but we can build the engine with specificity to the actual task that we're trying to be, you know, better at or quicker at, or, um, and just like you're saying, like, that's what they say that a lot too, with like, uh, you know, like my little nephew, all he does all day long is play basketball in the house with the little basketball. And he's just jumping and jumping and jumping and jumping and jumping, you know, again, like, you know, these, I'm, I would bet that again, that's going to help him, especially at this, at his age that he's at now. When he gets older, he's going to have, you know, more bounce, definitely more bounce than I did. That's for sure. Because uh, I wasn't jumping and doing all the yeah. things that he's doing on a, you know, everyday basis for hours and hours and hours and hours, you know? Yeah. There, yeah. And your point, your point is well taken. There's no reason not to train both things. You got to have both to succeed in the game, right? Why not train both? Yeah. And there's, there's, there's times and places and really good coaches are really good at sort of addressing things at the right time too, right? So Bosch's book is really good about talking about how you, develop strength and then now how do you turn that into coordination yeah and uh you know one of the major takeaways of that is it's really it is really difficult to do both things at once so you sort of have to have periods where you're working on one and then you have periods where you're working on the other mm -hmm. um, but both things are important to the training overall like if you really want to be a baseball player you're gonna have to do both things yeah, yeah. so efficiency of moving movement is a phrase we throw around a lot I think in both coaching, you know, cause I've, I've been a coach, I haven't coached for a long time, but I've been a coach. It comes up in biomechanics, comes up in exercise science. It's a, it's a phrase we use a lot. I think sometimes it gets a little bit sloppy, which is ironic cause it's yeah. about efficiency. Yeah. And uh, so what would efficiency of movement be? And I think from hitting, from a hitting standpoint, efficiency takes the form of being able to, um, 
make your swing quicker without sacrificing barrel speed, or if it's already quick, increase barrel speed without making it slower. That would be to me, that's really generalized. I know that, but um, you know, so much of what you're trying to teach players and so much of what any hitting coach is trying to teach players aimed at those things. And Joey, you and, you and I have talked about this a lot that, that you don't need this huge barrel speed necessarily to perform well in the game. And that, you know, a lot of pros are never maxing out at a barrel speed that we see sometimes reported or gets tweeted out or whatever. And that's, that's yeah. true. I think you still have to have the ability to produce that. Yeah. If you're going to, pr to produce it effortlessly, if that makes sense. Yeah. But the, but the main thing to me is to have, let's, let's call it sufficient barrel speed. Right. There's at a certain level adding more barrel speed isn't giving you more. So to have sufficient barrel speed while minimizing swing time, that will play. It will always play. You're going to get fooled less. You're going to find more barrels. The quality of contact is going to be better, and your exit velocities will, will increase. And we have – so I have data from uh, softball hitters and from baseball players at the collegiate level. I need more pros, so you guys can help me there. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, of in-game – in-game numbers, right? So nothing, nothing in a lab, nothing at the training facility, nothing. These aren't these aren't diamond kinetics or blast numbers. These are these are measured numbers from actual 3D uh, DLT studies on the field of play that actually show that things like batting and slugging are associated with bat acceleration, not bat speed, and that exit velocity even is associated with bat acceleration rather than barrel speed, which is very interesting to me. And it just tells me that, and you, and we all know we've all, we've all swung through balls with unbelievable barrel speed and didn't touch anything. Yeah. yeah. So that's great, but it, it didn't play. And, uh, uh, quality of contact is going to be what determines, you know, how well you're producing under game conditions. And so I think if you can wait longer to see a pitch and still produce sufficient barrel speed, you're going to do really well in the box. Well, and just like you're saying, when you're, when you're talking about uh, quality of contact, I think people, that's like an overused term as well, yeah. that people don't understand the complexity of a ball strike. Mm -hmm. And like you're talking about is like the transfer of momentum, how complex that process is uh, when it comes to force output. You know, mm -hmm. so like when uh, people just all the time are like, you know, just hitting it square. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, you want to catch, obviously, the, yeah, that's definitely part of it, 1,000%. But at the same time, it's not just hitting the barrel. You know, again, guys like Ben Revere, guys like Derek Jeter hit the barrel all the time. Like, again, they were finding barrels constantly. But that still doesn't mean that they had a lot of power, right, or that they were transferring a lot of force. And there's a lot of other things that are, you know, play into that. Um, yeah. Plus, too, I've just, from experience, my own personal experience, I've just trained way and seen and evaluated way too many hitters with such high bat speed that yeah. weren't hitting the ball that hard for me to know that there's more much more variables going on than oh i seen a guy that can swing a bat fast and then catch it on the barrel there's a lot yeah. of guys that swing it fast and catch it on the barrel and again it's still their evs are all over the place their transfer of momentum uh, momentum is inconsistent their force output is inconsistent um and because of baseball it it gets us in a realm where we have to be in a realm of consistency with relative direction as well you know there's a yeah. lot of different you know constraints on it you know yeah so then that's you're, you're touching on another thing where it's tempting to look at things only through the lens of biomechanics but let's think about everything that actually goes into hitting. let's think about the the mentality that goes into hitting situation you know somatic and psychological responses that go with it you know under pressure packed conditions vision um you know i don't know if you've read the sports gym but there's like a really interesting yeah. section in there about just like how outrageously well gifted professional baseball players in the vision department. Mm -hmm. so there's all kinds of things that go into this. And then plus just having a massive database uh, of uh, pitch recognition ability, right? The more pitches you've seen, the better you are at recognizing things and so on and so forth. There's just so much that goes into it. But yeah, you know, uh, I told you about Robin Lund, he's actually now the pitching coach at Iowa. He, he and I were both professors at UNI. And, and he left and went back to, to, uh, to uh, coaching. He's Rick Heller's pitching coach at Iowa. So uh, I'm unbelievably thrilled for him. He, he, uh, he found himself in a great situation there. And then they had, of course, their, their season uh, canceled. But yeah. long story short, when we would talk about 
um, this hitting stuff. And when some of the reason we did some of the studies we did, we, we wound up getting a, uh, a former softball player. She played for Patrick Murphy at Alabama. Her name's Cassie Riley Bosha. Fantastic brain, fantastic human being, and just wicked, wicked smart. And she came and we did this study that I'm describing to you or what, you know, where we looked at all these things and we evaluated, I want to say like 1,099 swings. It couldn't be exactly 1,100 and help my OCD, <laughs> like 1,099. And, uh, and, and what we were looking for is like numerical descriptors of a swing. So you have, um, you know, with a pitcher and, and, and again, there's a lot more to pitching than just velocity. We know that, but with a pitcher, if you tell me that a pitcher has a 87 mile an hour fastball, that tells me something versus somebody who has a 77 mile an hour fastball that those are very meaningful numbers in terms of pitching ability. All right. Well, what would be a, uh, an analogous number for a hitter? Is it barrel speed? Is it, um, is it, uh, efficiency? Is it connection, right? Like blast has got their connection score. Is it rotational acceleration? What is, is there some, are, is there a number or a collection of numbers that we can apply kinematically to a hitter that tells us something about how they swing a bat. And the, the more we've looked at it, the more it's come down to acceleration, which is, you can get that from blast and diamond kinetics. You just take, you know, bat speed and divide it by the swing time and, or time to contact as it's called. And you get that ratio is just a really crude bat acceleration. Yeah. That number means a lot in terms of actual hitting performance and, yeah. When hitters look at that instead of just one or the other, it's, I think it's more powerful. Yeah, I think the, the, the like you're saying, obviously there's, there's the crude part of that of being like, when does blast actually start measuring, right? Time to contact, right? Like, like their acceleration yeah. speeds, like when they're at, how they're measuring it. And then also too, like, obviously a guy can have a really short time to contact, but he's getting blown up and he's not even getting the barrel out. And so his time to contact would be short, even his bat speed might be a little higher. And it probably is, obviously, when you put the constraint of time, guys are going to speed up their barrel because they have to get there. So they're going to, you know, again, they're going to conform to the constraint if they have that ability within them. Um, yeah. You know, that's, that's when I tell people, I said, I see the highest bat speeds on when guys are getting beat. When guys are getting beat, their bat speeds spike. You know, again, think of Mike Trout. Let's say Mike Trout is getting beat and, he, you know, his bat speed is going to fly through the roof on that one particular swing. It doesn't mean that he's going to have the greatest result. Um, but his back, his bat speed's going to spike because he has the constraint of time and he's got to get, you know, he's got to use his max, you know, you know, uh, speeds that he can use to be able to, you know, strike that object. So that's also something I think about a lot. Um, but yeah, I think it's getting closer. Um, and I think there's a lot of different variables, especially with all these different tools, it gives us some different ways to evaluate hitters. But at the same time, I'm sure you would agree. There's still a large, large way to go before we can get a full holistic, you know, biomechanics and understanding of what's going on you know yeah like a, like here's your biomechanical breakdown for this well so so you're you're touching on something or at least you're bringing something to my mind that I, I think about this all the time right we have we have motion capture systems we have um we have things like blast and diamond kinetics um you know that are they're they're imus right they're inertial motion units so that they're based on that technology it's the same and it's that's the same type of thing that cave best is as well for example, so we have all these different systems and we have marker systems, we have marker lists or if, like the system that I have in my lab is actually both. You can use markers or marker lists. So there's, there's all these different variants. And then if you go way back to the ancient days and you talk to the Jedi masters, yeah. right? Your Jesus's and your, and your Michael Feltner's and those guys, they're using DLT, right? So that's what we were using for our studies. Our, our game studies are all DLT stuff. That's like, that's ancient stuff. That's, um, what, what would we say? It's a, it's a, a, a far more elegant weapon for a, for a civilized times. I can't remember. So we have all these ways of measuring things. One of the things that I think people could, uh, could get a lot out of is even if they never fully understand biomechanics as a discipline, because honestly, to get all the way under the hood in biomechanics is it's, it's a little hairy. I mean, there's, there's advanced math, there's all kinds of crazy stuff to it. So I understand, I understand the desire to understand it because it's obviously important. It's obviously, it's all the rage. People want to talk about the biomechanics of this and the biomechanics of that. Um, and so people feel like they should understand it. And I agree that they should. Um, of course I have the bias of being a biomechanist. 
but um, fully understanding it is like that's several levels above where the average coach is probably going to even have the time to get, which is totally understandable. So I think one of the things that we as biomechanists can do is do a better job of translating um, jargon into actionable, usable information to coaches and, and players. That's one thing we can do. And then from the, from the coaches and the training standpoint, anything that somebody can do to educate themselves on the limitations of these numbers is really important because when you measure something with an IMU like KVEST, there are very important limitations to the numbers that you're getting that should be understood. When you use marker capture, there are important limitations that should be understood. When you, you use DLT or markerless, there's really important limitations that should be understood. And so there is a temptation just because something can be measured. There's a temptation to take it as God's honest truth. Yeah. When the reality is it's like everything else. It's a measurement, which means there's error in it. All right. Well, what's the source of the error? What have we done to minimize it? And how you know, reliable can we, can we bank on this yeah. as being helpful or true? And so, you know, you brought up a good point, Joey, and that is like the diamagnetics uh, sensor, for example, or the, and the blast sensor, you know, how is it really starting the clock on time to contact? And we know it has, you know, above a certain threshold of velocity and acceleration. I think, I think but, it's uh, 100 degrees per second in a certain vector. Which that's exactly, that's exactly what I think it is too. Uh, so, um, yeah. So, that so that method might have problems, right? Somebody who slots a bat early and starts to drag it, their time to contact might look shorter than it really is. To your eyes, that looks like a long, draggy swing. Okay, but at the same time, if I use that same device to measure that swing, that player's swing every single time and I see changes, now I'm now I'm brushing up against some reliability. Now, if I change the swing well enough that there's no longer that slot early and drag, but there's a nice you know, early launch, that changes their whole mechanic. And now the numbers might look totally different. In fact, you might even see their time to contact jump for a while mm. with a new improved swing. <laughs> right. And then, so then you got to watch it from there. See, so understanding what it's doing is a really, I think that's really important for anybody that's training hitters and, or that's trying to train themselves and, and track their own progress, understanding what the thing is doing a little bit, even if you can't fully understand it, doing your best with that is really good because then it tells you whether or not your progress is meaningful or if it's measurement error. Yeah. I think you bring up a good point too, for especially baseball coaches with all the different data collection software out there, we're measuring things because we can, not necessarily because we should all the time. Um, especially if they don't fully understand what's taking place and what's causing it. Um, obviously you've had the opportunity to opportunity to evaluate and use this stuff. What would you say is one of the commonest misconceptions when it comes to uh, biomechanics of the swing and something that uh, you think some of the baseball community might be going at the wrong way. Uh, I, I wouldn't say people are going about it the wrong way. Cause I think we get better and better and better and better all the time. Right. Technology improves application of technology improves. And there's an increasing number of people who are willing to invest the time that it takes to try and understand this stuff. And I'm really impressed by that. So um, I think, um, I think and we like academic types, like I even has, I shudder to call myself that, but <laughs> you know, I think, I think one of the things that uh, certainly I try to be careful of it is to not dismiss somebody's, what somebody has said about a measurement or about a system based on their misunderstanding of the actual physics or something, because that's normal. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's normal. Most people avoid studying physics, um, as much as they can because it's not pleasant all the time. Yeah. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's about educating people. It's more about like saying, okay, I, I think I understand what you're trying to say. This, this is the terminology I would use. Here's where I'm at. Here's where you're at. I'll bet we have some common ground here. Let's keep talking it out. And it's, there's a real temptation for both sides, right? The practitioner side, which I'll call players and coaches and trainers. And the, the, um, the, I'll call it the academic side, but the people who are doing stuff in labs and whatever, there's, there's kind of this temptation to say, well, they don't know what they're talking about and they don't know what they're talking about because we're not spending enough time talking. I think that's getting a lot better, by the way. Um, I think uh, a lot of really smart people that are um, coaching and playing 
are educating themselves and reading everything they can. And that's huge. I just think that is huge. And I think that there's a certain number of us on the academic side that are like, there's, there's more and more of us that actually maybe I'll say speak baseball just a little bit, right? There's a lot of people that can do this work that aren't necessarily baseball people. Yeah. And so when they talk with coaches, the questions that come up in their mind might be different than what's actually eventually going to be useful. So Bo, to your point, I do think that there are a lot more things we can measure than are probably useful. Mm -hmm. Where I come from as a scientist is let's measure everything and see, you know, yeah. I, I personally, I have the time. I, you know, I could do that. That's fine. That's a luxury I have. If I'm a coach, that's different. I have to, I have a limited budget. I have to, um, I have to invest my time and my money where I think the biggest return on investment is going to be. Yeah. And what is that thing going to be? If I'm a parent, that's doubly more, right? Um, keeping kids in baseball is more expensive by the day. Sure. And uh, now you're going to add a bunch of gadgets and a bunch of electronics to that, that I have to, that I'm expected somehow to buy and, and use. And um, so, so if I'm that consumer, I'm really looking for what, what really matters. Mm -hmm. And so that's where collaborations like this one where we're actually engaged right now, I think are huge. Like, let's talk about what matters and what doesn't. The biggest misconception that I see with anything uh, along biomechanics is that just because I gave you a number, you can believe this number. And uh, if you really yeah. read the research papers, we're actually, those of us that publish stuff like this are actually really careful not to overstate our cases. And that's been sort of whipped into us over time of getting you know, shredded by advisors and, and peer reviewers. It's like, well, that's an outrageous leap or what's your rationale for doing this? And so we, we start to hedge our language a little bit and say things like, you know, this is, this might be true or this is supported by these data. Seems, uh, seems to, you know, indicate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, some so of that, yeah. Future work should be done on this to see if this is really true. All these little weasel phrases that we use, but there is a grain of wisdom in using language like that. And that is like, let's, let's be careful that, that we don't say this is exactly it. Just because we saw this, Absolutely. you know, a lot of the things that people read now, they, they can test for themselves. The, the, the technology is such that you can start to invest in some of this stuff yourself and you can test it for yourself and see if it really happens. And you can start to see if there are things that people do in, in, that you're measuring that actually do translate to on-field performance. Um, in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, you know, I think I think that's been big. Um, I know that you and I have talked about this uh, just the other day. We we're on the phone. And we we're kind of talking through, um, you know, again, like what we use the farm uh, board for, and like a lot of those different things with slide boards of like understanding um, not only like pressure, foot pressure, but also to um, you know where, what vector, or what direction force is being put into the ground. I mean, a lot of these like cheaper ways again for like mom and dad that have no understanding of biomechanics and no understanding of force play data or how to apply it once they even have the data. Um, and, you know, there's so many things that you, you can't just you, all of a sudden, because you started paying attention to biomechanics, you know, last month doesn't mean you're an expert all of a sudden within a month. So um, understanding all of those things, again, we try to, we try to, we try to do that same thing and bridge that gap uh, between the science and understanding just like, you know, just basic understanding of like, Oh, it, the board slid that way. I guess I'm putting force into the ground in that direction. You know, and yeah. some of those basic things that help bridge that gap um, in between, you know, the science and, you know, mom and dad. Yeah. yeah. No, agreed. I think, uh, I think from my standpoint, you know, I, one thing I, tr I try to avoid at all costs is any type of a barrier that I might put up in front of somebody that says, well, you have not, you've not spent the years that it takes to get this PhD and stuff like that. That's, that to me is baloney. You can't, you can't do that. That's not productive and it doesn't help anybody and certainly doesn't help me. I mean, I am, I am beholden to a huge list of coaches and players that have taken time to talk with me and explain what they think is important and what they're feeling or why they're doing a certain thing, which sparks in me. So I'm like, well, this is something we could study. We can measure this thing and see if this is really true. And if, if I were putting that barrier up, people wouldn't talk to me and I, I would be, I would be stuck. I'd be spinning my wheels in a lab doing stuff that's interesting to me, but that outside that lab has no bearing and no meaning. And, um, I don't see the point in that personally. Yeah. Well, I like that. And then, uh, the, my, you know, uh, another thing I, you know, would, as you start to kind of wrap up my, my a question I got for you is, 
Now, when you look at the realm of where baseball currently is, right, how things are being, um, you know, like the speed bumps and the natural speed bumps that I'm sure that even you kind of ran into of like, as you started, you know, diving into more biomechanics, you know, obviously there's gonna be those same natural speed bumps that coaches and a lot of those people are going to run into as well. Um, if you had like one piece of advice uh, for people that are starting to dive into like biomechanics, um, you know, maybe it's something you've already said in the show, but if you wanted to emphasize that or anything like that, it's just like, what would be your one advice if you were looking back at like, you know, the, the speed bumps, the natural speed bumps that you went through, what would be your advice when you start diving into a lot of this biomechanics side of things? Um, well, re read as much as you can of, of studies that have been done. And that's a tough one actually, because if people start, and I have to have this discussion with my students all the time, when you start just like pulling biomechanics articles, they're not, they're not pleasant reading usually. And if you're not familiar with techniques, principles, and so on and so forth that go into the physics of this stuff, it's gonna look like gibberish. And so, so, so read everything you can, but you might have to start with like people that are publishing good blogs and trying to um, kind of explain stuff. You know, can you find an online course somewhere to take that's going to explain, uh, you know, some mechanical principles, right? Hey, I, I know um, one, Bo. I know one, Bo. I don't know where. <laughs> I got a plug. I got a plug, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Check but, the show but, notes. But, and I, and I, that was unintentional, but. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Travis. Appreciate it. That's the name <laughs> right there. Appreciate it. <laughs> but it's a valid point. You got to start somewhere. So one of the things I know when we would do camps at UNI, then, then um, you know, Robin and I would would take an hour when they'd send campers through rotations. We had a station that we were manning, which was basically an hour of educating players on, you know, mechanics, like mechanical principles, actually, you know, Newtonian mechanics. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a physics lesson they were signing up for and sitting through without realizing it. And uh, that goes a huge long ways. One of the things I was really impressed is our, um, you know, our softball coach here, Randy Simpkins at, um, at uh, Dixie State, he had his entire um, team come to my lab for three Monday nights in a row to have basically like an educational series, like uh, on mechanics on, and, and to him, he's thinking, okay, finally, all these things that I say to these players, they're going to see the connection. And that's exactly how it worked. You know, cool. I would go through, here's a study, here's a study, here's a study. And, and, and I don't have a lot of talents in life, but sometimes I can translate, you know, kind of complex material into something a student can, can digest. And these are college students. That's what I do. Right. So, so, and then, you know, Randy could jump in and say, see, that's why I say this. And like, by the time we had done three weeks of that, just like the level of understanding we all had for each other and what we were trying to say and what we're trying to do was huge. So I would open up conversations. If I were trying to get into this, I would open up conversations. I would reach out to biomechanical experts, there's a fair number of us that really do like diamond sports and love communicating with people about it. Uh, people like Arnel Aguinaldo and, and uh, Jesus is retired, but you can certainly email him and he'll send you an email. It's like four and five pages long back. He is very <laughs> thorough in his responses. Um, yeah, uh, 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 Anthony Brady over at Driveline is an absolute genius. Uh, he's another guy that's really worth talking to and listening to, talking with and listening to. Yeah, so, so reaching out to people, having conversations, reading as much as you can. If you find that it's going on beyond what you can understand, say, okay, here's what I can't understand. Here's the part that I can't. Who can I talk to about this part right here? And, and start piecing that together. Because honestly, like, you know, I think about, so I think about this all the time, right? We, we talk about like uh, elbow joint torques, right? We talk about uh, various torques at the elbow during a pitching delivery and why that's a problem and why that's, could be injurious and what the risks are for the ulnar collateral ligament. And if you understand how those numbers are actually calculated, then you understand that 80 Newton meters and 68 Newton meters are the same number because there's just that much error potentially in the number. And so you have to take things with huge grains of salt. But if you don't know that, then you don't know that you look at one and you say, Ooh, that's 12 Newton meters more. Yeah. Ooh, is that good or bad? And so, 
you got to find that you got to find that threshold where you don't understand it. And if you really do want to understand it, you might have to reach out and talk to people. And I think that's always a good idea. Yeah. And obviously due to the, um, the, the halt we had in the middle of the conversation, people aren't on the call to, uh, reach out and ask you some of those questions right now. Um, if anybody that was on the call or anybody sees this at a later time, uh, what's the best way for them to reach out to you, get in contact and maybe further that conversation uh, with me personally. Yep. Uh, just send me an email, travis.thicklin at dixie.edu. And, uh, and I'm on Twitter. Uh, yep. Yeah. I don't tweet, I don't tweet a lot, but I haunt it. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I think my DMS are open. I don't know. I don't even know. <laughs> what that means, but I, think, I think they're open. So I think people could reach me that way. I know that's how I reached out to Justin, for example. And then I stumbled into to knowing Joey. So that type of stuff to me is just like, uh, is uh a it's fun yeah and, and b it's valuable to me it's what i was talking about earlier like talking with guys like you and other coaches and trainers and players that's where that's where the magic happens that's where i'm like oh that's important um yeah. to somebody who's on the field mm. what can i test about that and, and and is it really true is is what they perceive to be true really true and then yeah if I think it is or isn't, what's the error and the limitation of what I saw and so forth. So, yeah. No, hey, good. congratulations on your unlimited minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that thing just came up for me. Right. <laughs> Love it. Anyways, I'm sorry. I went, I went way off. Uh, no, no, that's perfect. No, no, it was awesome. No, we know we really, uh, no, we really appreciate you jumping on with us again. This is like conversations like this is what, you know, closes the gap uh, between, you know, all of those things. Um, and you know, that's, this is what it, you know, it happens. It's these conversations and, you know, these lives and people being open and having, taking away that ego and being like, yeah, the biomechanist and like, how do we, you know, I know some things I have some experience that they don't have. And then you have some experience that I don't have. And then how we, you know, use our, both of our experiences to move everything forward. Uh, we give the example in the mini courses, like if the experts are always pulling from the top and the, and the bottom's not going anywhere, you're just creating a big, massive gap in the middle. You need, you know, we need youth. We need everybody to push so we can close that gap um, and really push everything forward, which is, again, like you're saying, like mini courses and stuff, which is why, you know, we ended up creating that farm board education. Again, products coming out with education about how to actually use them and get results and what some science behind it and trying to mend some of that gap as well. Um, but again, you know, just I, I'm sure like anything we're doing, I'm sure we'll look back years from now and realize something we could have done better or a different way of looking at things or, you know, um, and we only know what we know and we've only been able to do what we've done from having, you know, resources like you to be able to connect with. So, um, you know, you know, awesome. Again, I appreciate you jumping on with us. Um, and I'm sure the listeners uh, loved it as well. So. Uh, I appreciate it. I feel terrible that we didn't get that. Some of these questions <laughs> that were actually about like force plates and stuff like that, but yeah, okay. I, I, I'd be perfectly happy to do it again sometime. Or yeah, if people want to sure. shoot me questions about, I love talking about force plates and motion capture. That stuff is like, it's what I do. They give me a paycheck to do what's essentially my hobby. It's incredible. Well, that's, that's just setting us up for part two, baby. Yeah, that's just set, not just setting <laughs> nice. us up. Nice. No, no, and I, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's definitely plenty of more things. I knew as soon as we got in the call, I think we we're about 20 minutes in. I'm like, oh yeah. boy, this that we could. <laughs> We could talk for, you know, again, I mean, even us, me and you jumped on the phone the other day and it was like, I think an hour and something minutes or something like yeah. that, you know? So, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. So I already, I already knew that, you know, we jumped on after the first 20 minutes and I'm like, I'm like, man, we're gonna have to either set up a part <laughs> two or figure this one out for sure. Right. So no, it's all golf fun things. And yeah, definitely much more that we could dive into. Um, especially too, I'm, I love the force plate stuff and especially with a lot of stuff we don't farm board. So, um, Absolutely. We'll have to set that up here pretty, uh, pretty soon so we can get that part too. Cause I'm sure, you know, this will be a big one for people to dive into. Cool. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks, Jens. It was fun. Thanks, Travis. I appreciate yeah. you hopping on with us, my man. Yep. We'll have you to the lab soon. Yep. All right, okay. Brother. All right, brother.